Welcome to the Evergreen Review podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm Miracle Jones, and, and I'm, I'm here today with uh, Robert Guffey. Uh, Robert Guffey is a lecturer in the Department of English at California State University, Long Beach. Uh, he's also the author of the novel Until the Last Dog Dies, and uh, also Camellio, a strange but true story of invisible spies, heroin addiction, and homeland security. Uh, that's from Or Books. Uh, came out in 2015, and which Trevor Wire called by many miles the year's weirdest and funniest book. Um, are, are you working on anything longer right now? Yes, the the QAnon pieces might very well be a book, uh, and um, oh, okay, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that that will happen. And then uh, also, I've been working on a book for about 10 years now, off and on, called uh, Hollywood Haunts the World. An Investigation of the Cinema of Occulted Taboos. It's a very long book and it covers cinema from 1921 to 2021. So it's a hundred years. Uh, and uh, it goes into how, how society processes taboo subjects through the medium of fiction and particularly through the medium of film. Uh, it begins with a film called The Phantom Carriage in 1921 and then goes all the way through, all the way up to WandaVision uh, in 2021, which is technically a TV show, but really it's like a nine hour film. And so uh, it, it deals with uh, how certain taboo subjects were dealt with in film. Uh, and so, for example, one of the chapters is about uh, the, the whole subgenre of Darwinian evolution uh, films uh, that go back to the 20s, usually horror films, but not necessarily men turning into apes, apes turning into men, women turning into apes, uh, women mating with apes, uh, <laughs> on and on. Lon Chaney Sr. did films like this, and um, all, and, and you can see the subgenre that goes through from the 20s all the way really into the early 60s. They show a process of how the subject with the theory of evolution could not be taught in a lot of schools in the 1920s, but you saw it kind of encoded in the form of these horror stories in the 20s and the 30s. And then eventually uh, the taboo becomes accepted. And then you kind of see the metaphor just dies out. And eventually a film will come along that just deals with the subject directly, almost in a, like a documentary kind of way. And then the, the subgenre just kind of like fizzles out because uh, the, the taboo has been sort of like absorbed and just became, become common knowledge. So it doesn't need to be encoded in metaphor anymore. Uh, I think sometimes these things are intentional and other times it's more of a, a sort of union uh, working out of uh, unconscious anxieties uh, about change. Usually there's a great, there's a great quote in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, the original novel in 1818, where it says something like there's, there's nothing more horrific to the human mind than a great and sudden change. What a, what a great theme to kick off what many consider to be the first science fiction uh, novel because science fiction is all about change. And therefore, if it's about change and celebrating change, then it's also about pushing against neophobia, the fear of the new, which you can see reflected in QAnon. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, is, there's a definite neophobia going on there. While I was in quarantine, I ended up watching all the, uh, the Criterion Collection put out just a, a playlist, I guess, of uh, 70s horror movies. 
one of the, uh, the the themes that kept coming through in these 70s horror movies I was watching was um, spousal murder, I guess, is a taboo of your spouse being infected. I, yeah, I would say that's a taboo. Yeah. <laughs> <I don't think laughs> of, your, of, your, yeah. of your spouse being sort of not who you think they are and then you end up murdering them and then it turns out you were deluded or you know there's (laughs) it's there's just a ton of those which i I think probably kind of resonated in quarantine um i think probably a lot of people went through that experience i think this leads us in to your um your series of articles that you wrote for for evergreen which everyone should should read last year you wrote a, a series of articles for salon uh, five-part article uh, about sort of QAnon, its its development and, and history, where it came from. And then you wrote a, another article um, for us, kind of catching up. And then now you've written a, a four-part article for us, sort of like kind of aware where it is now. Um, the series is, is titled, If You're Into Ch- Eating Children's Brains, You've Got a Four-Year Free Ride, uh, a QAnon Bedtime Story. Um, <laughs> Which I, I assume refers to the uh, the theory purported by QAnon that Biden will make an easier time of it for the child eaters um, of the world. So it's a victory for for the people who enjoy child eating, um, and or at least a, a reprieve from the from Trump's agents coming to to, to hunt them down. Child eating is another taboo. Right, sure. uh, uh, that, that, and, and which is which is why it makes good fodder for horror fiction and the QAnon narrative is a, a horror story uh, it's a horror story that purports to be true I mean it's almost like the Penny Dreadfuls you know that were published back uh, in the Victorian era in England like about Sweeney Todd where it's you know presented as something that's true you know uh, or and then there are plenty of sort of fictionalizations that came out at the time of Jack the Ripper murders and to, you know, sensationalizing something that need not be sensationalized. It's already sensational <laughs> enough. And that's a perfect description of QAnon. You know, they take things that are already sensational, like Epstein, and make it weirder <laughs> than, than it already is. Uh, but yes, it is a, a horror story, a, a weaponized horror story. And horror, you know, if you explore horror, uh, it's, all, it's often been used as, you know, propaganda, kind of xenophobic propaganda, werewolves, things like this in Europe uh, were associated with, you know, the other. So there's always been this kind of interesting conflict between kind of reactionary horror fiction and then a kind of more progressive horror fiction that kind of analyzes that. And yet it's also hitting on the same notes here and there. It's kind of interesting. I mean, you, you have one type of horror fiction that's using it to spread fear uh, you know, the spate of, of serial killer films that came out in the 80s in the midst of the AIDS scare and the entire message of all of Friday the 13th and all of them was like, don't have sex. And if you do, you will be murdered horribly. The girl who doesn't have sex is the one who lives at the end. Right here. In QAnon, and you know, getting back to eating yeah. children's brains, right. there was even a case of a guy, Will Summers of the Daily Beast reported on this. There was a guy who kidnapped his own kids he was estranged from his wife he kidnapped five of his kids because he was concerned that they were going to be kidnapped by the deep state so he had to do it first to protect them from having their their brains eaten 
the, the, the wife was in the car and she just like bailed out the door. She just like completely abandoned them and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go he- get help kids. The guy was uh, fleeing from the police on the freeway and actually live streamed the chase. Uh, and he's yelling out during the live stream, Q, help me, Q. You know, Donald Trump, help me. I need help. Uh, and he's ranting about uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, eating the brains of, of the child and how there was a video of this found on Anthony Weiner's laptop. We, we haven't seen the video because the police absconded with it or something, you know. Uh, and so, and then the, he has a 13-year-old daughter in the car and she starts trying to tell him that uh, she's actually part of the conspiracy just, just to, to try to like confuse him so she can grab the steering wheel and that doesn't work. And then he starts ranting that his daughter's in on the conspiracy. Uh, and finally, they, the cops like punctured his tires and it managed to get him off the freeway and, and arrest him. But I, I just thought it was interesting that the only verifiable uh, incident of someone kidnapping children and then ranting about eating children's brains was a QAnon follower. Uh, <laughs> it's the ultimate like cognitive dissonance. Also, in, in terms of the, the vote steal, vote, vote scam, right uh, the, on the, the day of the election, uh, there was two guys who were arrested in Philadelphia because they drove down there. They got Q slogans in the back of the, the truck and they had all these uh, fake ballots in the in the truck and they had all these guns and they were arrested. And And I thought I mentioned this in the article. You know, isn't it interesting that the only verifiable case of people having fake ballots are these two QAnon guys? But there's a whole kind of like weird end of empire, apocalyptic uh, flavor <laughs> to, to the entire thing. And I started writing the Salon series because I knew about Q when he first popped up on 4chan in 2017, October, November, 2017. I didn't pay much attention to it. I had friends who were following it, but I didn't, I just pretty much ignored it for a while. Like everyone, most people did. Uh, And then I didn't really start looking deeply into it until right at the beginning of the lockdown uh, as around March. And I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in the Midwest. He's about 10 years older than me. I've known him for a long time. I was talking about teaching through Zoom and how difficult that was for you know, teaching creative writing through Zoom and all this stuff. And then he suddenly tells me, well, the lockdown is going to be a positive thing. I said, well, why? Why is it going to be a positive thing? And he said, well, because there's the white hats and the black hats and the white hats have taken control over Google and the white hats, the military are going through the deep underground military bases and they're cleaning them out and they're saving thousands of kids from these satan worshiping illuminati members uh, who are torturing them and extracting adrenochrome from them and and it, it got really elaborate and I, I said where are you you know getting this from and you know and so you know he sends me the links to the to the q map and to some some video QAnon videos and most reasonable people would have watched it for like five minutes and stopped but I'm not, I, I just, I'm not that reasonable. So I just plowed through the whole thing and kept watching it. And I, I recognized like where all this was coming from because I've been, my, the first article I ever published was for Paranoia Magazine uh, when I was 24 in 1996. So I've been studying conspiracy theories for a long time. And when, I'm, when I was looking at these videos and reading the, the Q posts, I instantly recognized that a lot of it was coming from a book called Operation Vampire Killer 2000. What, an, what a title. That was published, it was a, a stapled pamphlet, booklet, that was published by a, an organization called Police Against the New World Order. Uh, and they published it like in the early 90s. And this was the beginning of the 
the militia movement before it was really called that. I ordered away for a copy uh, and, and I got one, I read it. Were you trying to keep tabs on the militia or what, what is it in you that um, compels you to, um, to order away for something like well, that? Well, first of all, the title. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Operation Vampire Killer 2000 is just like so great. I had to know like, what, what is this, right? <laughs> so what was intriguing about it was, it was these right wingers, but they were, they didn't like George Bush. They didn't, they didn't like the Republican Party. The whole point of the book was warning against the militarization of the police and warning against imminent martial law. Particularly at that time, which is the early 90s, I had grown up under the mushroom-shaped shadow of Ronald Reagan you know, for eight years and then four years of George Bush. It, it didn't look like it would ever end at that time. It was just going to continue you know, a Republican-like dynasty. Right. And so right, right at the tail end of that, the beginning of the the Clinton administration is when this this book comes out. I thought it was interesting that there were these they were right wingers, but they but they didn't like Republicans, and they did and they were concerned about these these issues that are serious issues: the militarization of the police, for example. And so, for a long time, from the beginning of Operation Vampire Killer 2000 through on up to the Oklahoma City bombing, and then past that, these sort of more libertarian uh, type of right wingers were extremely concerned about martial law. And, and like there was, there was an attorney named Linda Thompson who uh, put out a video called Waco the Big Lie. Uh, and she was warning against concentration camps that were secret concentration camps being built across the United States. And they had the barbed wire facing inward to keep people inside. And this is where the Christian patriots were gonna be put. And th there were these kind of horror stories being spread uh, over and over again. And none of that ever happened, of course. But I thought what was interesting about Q is that Q pops up in October 2017 when Trump was at his lowest approval rating, which I think is interesting that that's when Q pops up. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, you know, two weeks, three weeks, Q, an anonymous poster on 4chan, manages to take this whole community of people and completely flip their concerns around so that they were no longer concerned about the militarization of the police. They were no longer concerned about martial law. They were welcoming martial law. And one of the slogans of, of QAnon became, the military is the only way. You know, the military is the only way to solve this problem. And, and I thought that that's a fascinating sociological experiment. If you could do that to a whole group of people, you know, they've been paranoid about this thing for two decades or more, and then suddenly you can flip it because of an anonymous poster on 4chan in a couple of weeks, that's amazing. And because and now what Q was saying was, oh no, Donald Trump, he's gonna use martial law to solve the problem. And the people who are gonna be put in the secret concentration camps aren't the right-wing Christian patriots, it's gonna be all the Democrats. They're gonna be thrown in the concentration camps. And then the reaction was, oh, well, that's okay then. <laughs> Even uh, just a few days before uh, January 6th, and, and that's partly the reason why I, I started writing this four-part series. You know, it was, um, I, I guess, Donald Trump's Operation Mindfuck, the article uh, that was posted early November. I guess that got good enough attention that uh, Dale Peck asked me, well, would, would you like to do a follow-up, kind of like, wh where is QAnon now? And, and my immediate reaction was, oh, my, I don't want to, like, wallow in the QAnon mud for that long to, to do that. But then, like, a second later, I thought, 
well, this is a really unique opportunity to document the collapse of an entire belief system in real time. And so I started writing it on November 7th. In a way, it wrote itself because I, I just decided to, um, you couldn't possibly monitor every single QTuber out there. So I just decided to stick with the two I had begun with in the Salon series, Rick and Gene, Rick Renee of the Blessed to Teach channel and his mysterious friend, Gene, uh, who has all these uh, secret military insider sources uh, who tell him what's going to happen. And then he'll go on Rick's show and say what's gonna happen and then it never happens, but it doesn't matter. It's just, they just keep plowing, plowing on. So like January 4th, Rick and Gene go on the air and Gene's telling everybody, listen, you know, in two days on January 6th, if you see tanks rolling down the street, don't worry about it. Don't go for your guns. That, those are the white hats. Just let, let the soldiers do what they need to do. Okay. Uh, and, you know, if, and if there's resistance, well, you know, they're going to, they're going to have to deal with God, <laughs> you know, and there were uh, rhapsodizing about this, this coming uh, imminent martial law, you know, the, the, these very same people were frightened about it 20 years ago. And now they're, they're rhapsodizing about it, you know, having orgasms talking about when, when the martial law is going to happen. And so in, in particularly that January 4th uh, broadcast is particularly interesting in retrospect, because here he is going on the show and you can tell he's getting everybody ready for what's going to happen two days, you know, two days from now, the whole articles, the four part article structured like a countdown. And I knew it was counting down to something, but I didn't know what, uh, I, I, I didn't know if it was going to be January 6th or January 20th or whatever. I, I knew there was going to be some kind of apocalyptic, uh, firework display. I didn't know exactly how it would manifest itself, but then when January 6th happened, it was clear now, okay, QAnon was plan B all along or plan C or plan Q. You know, if Trump doesn't win, activate plan Q. And uh, I don't think people realize uh, how close we came to having a November 22nd, 1963 kind of scenario <laughs> play out on January 6th. Just a series of coincidences and synchronicities prevented something far more bloody uh, happening. And it's clear to me that most of those people were just rabble rousers who were going in and you know, urinating in the hallway grabbing Pelosi's podium and stuff like that. But amongst them were very serious people, uh, military trained people, the zip tie guys, they had cameras mounted on their chests. Uh, it seems clear to me that the intent was to go in, you know, truss up Pelosi and Mike Pence and either hold them for hostage until the election was, was changed or, uh, you know, live stream their execution like, like Al-Qaeda or something, which is hilarious because they, you know, profess to uh, hold Al-Qaeda in disdain. You know, here they are <laughs> uh, exhibiting the same kind of um, counterinsurgency uh, strategies. Uh, I think that from the very beginning, the be from, from the moment that Q started posting, that its purpose was to create this kind of propaganda to lead to, to January 6th. Was it a money-making opportunity dressed up as a, as a, as a crime or was it, um, was it more top-down political manipulation? Um, oh, I, I think it was both simultaneously. I mean, on one hand, you had like the lower level parasites like, like Rick Renee making money off the, their QTube empire, you know, uh, selling Christian patriot sanitizing cream. 
and telling you to invest in gold and, and, and that kind of thing. And then, and, and that's kind of like the lower level, you know, bottom feeders of the situation. But then at the, the top, you know, where the, where the, the people actually writing the, the Q posts, I, I noticed a pattern. And this is something I mentioned in the Donald Trump's Operation Mindfuck article and also in the, uh, the initial Salon series is that the pattern was they would take a pre-existing conspiracy theory that was essentially anti-fascist at its core. Whether it's true or false it is irrelevant in this discussion. Uh, it's just that the core of the conspiracy theory was anti-fascist. So for example, Mae Brussel, who was referred to as the queen of conspiracies, uh, she had a radio show in the 60s and 70s. She indexed the uh, Warren Commission report. There was no index for the Warren Commission. They released it without an index. So she she indexed it herself. She wrote about Watergate before Watergate happened, before it was acknowledged by, by the Washington Post. She had, she had figured out what was going on just from reading newspapers. She didn't have <clears throat> inside intelligence sources. She, she just, she read like 20 newspapers a day. And it was like, oh, wait a minute, this is what's going on. And she put the pieces together and, and, and sometimes in an accurate way, and sometimes in a, in a wildly phantasmagorical way. Uh, but, but she was, you know, a Jewish woman who was sort of traumatized by the JFK assassination, was one of those early JFK assassination researchers who started investigating it like the day after Lee Harvey Oswald was, was killed. For example, she had this whole theory about Operation Chaos, where she thought that rock stars were being killed by the CIA to like offset, you know, the, 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 uh, the protest movement. So like Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, et cetera. So Q, QAnon, they, they take that, they flip it. Uh, there's this documentary called Out of Shadows, do, you know, documentary in quotes. <clears throat> it's, it, it, it took the internet by storm around about April last year, hugely popular, you know, uh, and it, it purports to be a documentary about the links between uh, Hollywood and the propaganda machine of the Pentagon and the military, which is a, a worthwhile thing to investigate. There's a chapter in Hollywood Haunts the World that's about that very subject. Because Hollywood has had links, you know, with Washington going, you know, back to World War II and maybe even earlier. So they, they start out with this legitimate line of research. And then within like eight minutes, it's off into the twilight zone. And so they start, they interview this ex-CIA agent named Kevin Shipp. He takes Mae Russell's theory and flips it so that now the rock stars who are murdered, they're, they're not the victims of the conspiracy. They are the conspirators. Uh, and Frank Zappa and Jim Morrison uh, because their fathers were in the military, they're like the MK Ultra progeny of this conspiracy to create these rock star icons to get otherwise straight white Americans to ingest LSD and all these uh, uh, consciousness altering uh, chemicals. You know, in, in my experience, it, it doesn't take a vast CIA conspiracy to encourage teenagers to experiment with consciousness-altering substances. They, they seem to, to want to do it entirely on their own. And so that's, that's, that's one example. Even the whole idea of the, uh, the Satanists, of, of the CIA, there being a connection between the police or, or the CIA with Satanists, that goes back to uh, Lewis Tackwood, who wrote a book called The Glasshouse Tapes in the 60s, which was this far left publication. In other words, it was the far left talking about this. Uh, Lewis Tackwood had been an informant for the uh, LAPD. He said that they were creating uh, satanic cults as a cover so that they could blackmail, you know, 
powerful people and get them in compromising situations. And he, he, this was just an offhanded comment that he mentioned in the Glasshouse tapes. So that, that's taken by QAnon and flipped. The Franklin cover-up, which was a book written by John W. DeCamp in around about 1994, 95, was all about a, a pedophile ring being run by a guy named Lawrence E. King, who formed the entire you know, Republican National Convention in the, in the early uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, so he was a, a powerful Republican, but he was indulging in this, this vast pedophile ring. And Franklin Coverup was all about this. So they take that and, and they flip it. So it's not the Republicans uh, who are the pedophiles. It's the Democrats are the pedophiles. And so I, I saw w over and over again this pattern of taking the past conspiracy theories and just flipping it. Uh, I think the purpose of it was to build on the base that had put uh, George W. Bush into office, which they, they, they basically said, you know, let's, let's tap into this Christian right-wing electorate. And someone decided why um, restrict ourselves to them? Because the fascinating thing about QAnon is that, that there are a lot of like Christian nationalists involved in it, but it appeals to all sorts of people. I know former Democrats who, are, who just went right down the rabbit hole totally into QAnon. You know, and so you could you could be a Christian and be and be into QAnon, but you could also be an atheist. You could be the, you could think, oh well, yeah, they're they're Satanists and they're sacrificing kids to Satan, but Satan's not real. You know, uh, they maybe they think it's real, uh, and I think it's still going on, but you know, there there are no real demons. You could be a fan of conspiracy theories. You could be a fan of the occult. You could be like a into the paranormal and believe in QAnon. You could be an accelerationist and be really into QAnon. Uh, it's it's like a secular religion in that sense. Yeah. So to that end, why should we take QAnon more seriously than evangelical Christianity, for instance? Um, if I'm being generous, QAnon feels like a step up from evangelical Christianity and it's in that it's more inclusive and has kind of a, a definable morality that, you know, doesn't come from ancient texts. Um, it feels kind of like a cry for help in some ways from evangelicals who still want to believe crazy bullshit, but they want to hate new people other than traditional enemies, such as, you know, gay people, black people, and women, right? So this kind of gives them a way to, to kind of make bridges, right? So, so to my mind, QAnon can therefore kind of be seen as um, maybe an olive branch. I don't know, a really dark one, but... That, that's interesting, you know, in a way, you know, when you asked me why did I first order away for the Operation Vampire Killer 2000, that, in fact, that was actually one of my things I was interested in uh, about it because I saw it as this um, a window of opportunity. It was like, here are these right-wingers, but they're not sympathetic to uh, the, the whole push towards militarizing everything. They're warning against that. So there seemed to be like an opportunity there, like a bridge could be formed between these, these particular more like libertarian right-wingers and, and more progressive types, you know, there could actually be a connecting link between these groups that, that quickly got lost <laughs> you know, by, the, by the time you get to, you know, uh, 1996 and the Oklahoma city bombing, uh, you've got people like Mark Cornkey, who is, who is one of the, uh, heads of the militia just started ranting about the United Nations, you know, and, and black helicopters and anything that was even vaguely serious about it just got, you know, swept away. 
but yes, I do. I understand what you're saying uh, that that when you say it's more inclusive in a strange way, that's true. I mean, some some of them uh, are just you know there are outright racists you know involved in it. You know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of conspiracy theories, of course. And the people who are really paranoid about Freemasons are generally anti-Semites as well. Uh, uh, you know, if you go back to Mein Kampf and look in the index, you know, Freemasonry and see what he what he says about them. However, on the other hand, I think a lot of them would um, push back against any accusations of being uh, racist and would probably, you know, if you put them on a lie detector test, would pass it if they said I'm not racist, uh, because I think they believe that they're not. It kind of like slips in in a more subversive way. In the Q post, all throughout last summer, the main, one of the main antagonists that emerges over the course of the post is, is Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and it's, it's done in a kind of more condescending way. Uh, I, I remember one, like almost word for word, like black people being used as pawns, question mark. Uh, and, cause they were all, they're all like questions. <laughs> they're like, they were often just questions, like not, not statements, you know, but then they would be interpreted as, as statements by the acolytes, black people used as pawns, question mark, BLM, uh, cover for Antifa, question mark it's not possible that they just of their own volition decided to go out and protest something that was unjust. That's not very likely. No, more likely is that they're puppets, you know, being used by the democratic party to create chaos, to push Trump out of office. (laughs) Of course. course, Yeah, no, of course that goes both ways. Um, During the, the George W. Bush era, the left definitely profited from the 9-11 was an inside job theory, um, you know, without pushing back against it very much, since the theory dovetailed really nicely with the real failures of the Iraq war and the real revelations about torture and extraordinary rendition, you know, these actual horrors. Um, the left also, you know, turns a blind eye to, to lies about GMOs and vaccines. And, you know, it's been decades since the FTC has taken on a pyramid scheme, right? So I think I think kind of what you're saying is that conspiracists are, are a really important demographic, you know, that has its own needs that can be met by either the right or the left. And, you know, the left maybe or were embarrassed by them and stopped feeding them anything that they could get, sink their teeth into. And this left a vacuum for the right to really move in and try to twist everything that had already come before and kind of steer these existing people towards something that served their narrative for Trump. Um, Right. I, yeah, I think that that's, that that's true. Uh, the tendency uh, of mainstream media to take the stance that there are never any conspiracies, even though obviously, you know, people are convicted on conspiracy charges every day. <laughs> so, so when you are constantly saying something that's not true, and then someone comes in and can demonstrate, for example, that MKUltra was a real CIA operation that went on for decades, experimenting on children, mental patients, uh, women, prisoners, uh, and, and that happens, you know, and I think the, the full extent of MK Ultra is not really even still to this day not known. A recent biography was published by Sidney Gottlieb, who was among the top tier of MK Ultra uh, scientists. So, yeah, there are government conspiracies, you know, uh, uh, and so when you're constantly saying, you know, that's kind of crazy to say that there are conspiracy theories. And when you can clearly see with your own eyes that they're happening all the time, it's, oh, well, they lied about that. All these other things must be true. So therefore, the Illuminati, you know, have these underground grottos. And sure, they're kidnapping kids, bringing them down into the 
into the obsidian abattoir and experimenting on them. Also in that regard, a couple of days ago, uh, Edward Snowden uh, published an essay called Conspiracy, Theory and Practice. So Snowden writes, the greatest conspiracies are open and notorious, not theories, but practices expressed through law and policy, technology and finance. Counterintuitively, these conspiracies are more often than not announced in public and with a modicum of pride. They're dutifully reported in our newspapers. They're bannered onto the covers of our magazines. Updates on their progress are scrolled across our screens, all with such regularity as to render us unable to relate the banality of their methods to the rapacity of their ambitions. The party in power wants to redraw district lines. The prime interest rate has changed. A free service has been created to host our personal files. These conspiracies order and disorder our lives, and yet they can't compete for attention with digital graffiti about pedophile Satanists in the basement of a DC pizzeria. This in sum is our problem. The truest conspiracies meet with the least opposition. Or to put it another way, conspiracy practices, the methods by which true conspiracies such as gerrymandering or the debt industry or mass surveillance are realized are almost always overshadowed by conspiracy theories, those malevolent falsehoods that in aggregate can erode civic confidence in the existence of anything certain or verifiable. In my life, I've had enough of both the practice and the theory in my work for the United States National Security Agency, I was involved with establishing a top secret system intended to access and track the communications of every human being on the planet. And yet, after I grew aware of the damage the system was causing, and after I helped to expose that true conspiracy to the press, I couldn't help but notice that the conspiracies that garnered almost as much attention were those that were demonstrably false. Uh, and they, and he, he published that just a couple of days ago. In 2014, everyone was talking about Snowden and the NSA revelations. And I remember an article in the Washington Post, according to a Pew poll, that the entire brand name of America being the bastion of freedom was on the, on the decline in the view of uh, other countries because of the Snowden revelations. And now, you know, we're talking about QAnon. And yet, I, you know, on one hand, it's, it, it's a successful distraction, extremely successful distraction uh, and then and yet on the other hand you can't just ignore it you know because it's, it's having a verifiable effect on on human lives speaking yeah. of successful distractions um do you think the recent declassification of information about ufo sightings and subsequent media barrage will have any effect as far as pulling people's attention away from QAnon conspiracies and into more traditional paranoid thinking you know that's less one-sided you know if i were to craft a psyops program to take on QAnon, it would be hey let's think about aliens again you know um I, I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, it was an article by Will Summer of the Daily Beast just the other day. Uh, and the headline read something like, um, uh, QAnon believes that UFOs are a distraction from the truth. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> uh, uh, and and, and that, that was published just like a couple of days ago. Yeah, the exact article. QAnon crowd convinced UFOs are a diversion from voter fraud, right? That's Will Summer, Daily Beast. That's May 25th, okay? So then this is an article from Deseret.com. Uh, it says, is there a conservative position on UFOs and aliens? Uh, and then further on down, it says, Trump, the former president, recently sounded skeptical of extraterrestrial visitors in an interview, saying that he doesn't want to ruin anyone's fun, but that he is, quote, not such a believer, unquote. <laughs> I'm sort of a believer in what you see, 
Trump said recently on the Dan Bugino show. Uh, mm -hmm. But some people are. I don't want to hurt their dreams or their fears, unquote. So I thought it's interesting that QAnon pulls together every single conspiracy theory in existence, except UFOs. Yeah. UFOs are not part of the QAnon mythos at all. So it's interesting that the one, the one conspiracy theory Trump's not interested in does not find its way into the QAnon narrative. You know, <laughs> it's, and is actively rejected, as we see here. They're, they're saying that UFOs are uh, a distraction from the truth of the, uh, of the, the pedophilia ring, et cetera. And also that's a traditional Christian uh, interpretation of UFOs, I, by the way, is there's, there's, there's all you know, books about this, that, that UFOs are demons. There's a guy named Norio Hayakawa, uh, who was like one of the early Area 51 researchers. Uh, he was like one of the first people to popularize Area 51, like in the late eighties. And uh, he's, he's, he's a Christian. And so his whole interpretation of UFOs is that they are in fact uh, demons. Yeah, I, 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 I was interested in that as I was looking at QAnon from the beginning, like when, when are UFOs gonna pop up? And, and, it, and it never does. Uh, and the, given the fact that every other conspiracy theory is involved in it, uh, it seems like a noticeable absence. So it's interesting that Trump has, is on the record saying he's not interested in UFOs. You can't think about both these things at the same time. And maybe the tradition of UFOs leads you into more liberal um, globalist thinking, right? You know, you have well, to think about the world as a whole. Well, you know, I mean, that, that is a uh, uh, Stan Friedman, who, who, was the, who wrote Crash at Corona, a book about UFOs. He, he often said that the main threat of, uh, of UFOs uh, was that naturally, uh, if you're interested in it, it gets you thinking of yourself not as an American, but as as part of a of the human race, right? Even Ronald Reagan said this. You know those infamous speeches that he made in front of the one in front of the United Nations and one in front of a high school crowd somewhere, where he's where Ronald Reagan said, "Wouldn't it be interesting if we were invaded by aliens? And wouldn't wouldn't that you know Russia and the United States would come together?" Uh, uh, and which, which oddly enough is the plot of uh, Alan Moore's uh, Watchmen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a graphic novel. And it's, it's a conspiracy to, to fake an alien invasion to create utopia and end and, and the Cold War, uh, which is interesting because uh, I, I've often wondered if Alan Moore was aware of a book published back in the early 70s or late 60s called Report on Iron Mountain uh, by Leonard Lewin. Or, well, when it was first published, it was, it was not by Leonard Lewin. Leonard Lewin claimed he just edited it and published it. But it was supposedly a, a, a real document of government insiders. <clears throat> and you were reading like their memos. Uh, and it was about the plan to uh, continue uh, filling the you know, military industrial complex with, with money. Uh, and so how are they going to do this? And it, it went through these five stages. One was the fake terrorism. Uh, and it all led up to part five, which was to fake an alien invasion. Uh, later, Leonard Lewin admitted that he, he wrote the whole thing and he made it up and it was intended to be satire, um, uh, which is interesting because there are certain aspects of QAnon that could be interpreted as satire. But, but Leonard Lewin said that he, he meant Report on Iron Mountain to be satirical in nature. What's funny is I, I later saw an interview with L. Fletcher Prouty, who wrote The Secret Team and was the basis of the Donald Sutherland character in Oliver Stone's JFK. He's the guy sitting on the bench, Mr. X, who's revealing to uh, um, Jim Garrison the secrets of the JFK assassination. Uh, L. Fletcher Prouty said he met Leonard Lewin 
And, and he said to Leonard Lewin, you know, it's interesting that you intended to be satire because when I was working in the, in the JFK administration, all the young guys who were in the administration, they were saying all those things <laughs> that you wrote about in the book. They were talking about it like totally seriously. So when I read it, I assumed it was a real document. And, and so I, I love that because sometimes you can have something that's just because something's satire doesn't mean it's not true. There's, you know, many examples of science fiction writers writing something and then uh, getting a visit, you know, from the FBI, like during World War II, there were certain science fiction writers, even Jack Kirby, you know, the comic book artist who created Captain America, uh, he had done uh, some comic book story about an atom bomb. Uh, he didn't call it the atom bomb, but he described it in every other way. Uh, and he said he had found, he had read an article about Nikola Tesla in some obscure magazine. And so that's what inspired the story. And then the FBI came to his office and wanted to know where he got the information. And Jack Kirby being from like the Bronx uh, just got <laughs> pissed off and like threw him out of the office. I thought, well, isn't that fascinating? Like, they were actually monitoring comic books. Yeah, famously war games and sneakers, both uh, the film sneakers, both influenced uh, domestic security policy. The guy watches it and then it becomes sort of cybersecurity policies. No, it's something uh, Phil K. Dick, you know, he, yeah. his house was broken into and he, he, he ended up, uh, he was so threatened uh, that he, he ended up going to Canada and staying there for a while. And he ended up having a nervous breakdown. He's in the hospital and the guy next to him is this military guy. Uh, and he tells the, the patient on the bed next to him about what had happened back in Orange County with the break-in. And the, the military guy says to Phil Dick, oh, sounds like may maybe you wrote something that was true and you didn't know it. Uh, and so they broke in to see how you knew it. Uh, and then he said to Phil Dick, do you know what story it might have been? <laughs> so Phil Dick had written like 100 stories at this point and, like, uh, you know, dozens of mind-bending novels. He eventually he thought it might have been a story that he wrote for Harn Ellison's Dangerous Visions anthology called Faith of Our Fathers, which is all about a, a future society where they're pumping, you know, psychoactive chemicals into the water supply to create a kind of shared sort of matrix, you know, virtual reality that everyone is living in. And this guy kind of like figures it out and is trying to break everyone out of the quote matrix. Uh, uh, so he thought that that might have been the story that drew their attention. So there's also the, the, the incredibly strange case of Corden or Smith. He, he was a science fiction writer and really Phil Dickian in some ways, but not many people know about him. He should have more of a reputation at this point. But his real name was Paul Linebarger and he literally was the father of psychological warfare. He actually wrote the book called Psychological Warfare, which was the manual that was used during World War II. And his whole view of psychological warfare was a, a humanitarian one. In other words, is there a way where we can fight wars without killing people? And so he came up with all these amazingly uh, clever methods to destabilize conflict um, using information warfare. And oddly enough, he used to teach classes in this. And among his students was E. Howard Hunt. And he actually told, he would regularly tell his students you can never use these techniques on American soil. It would absolutely violate the constitution and erode at the, the entire core of democracy. So you must never do it in the United States. I think his students just, that just <laughs> one ear and out the other. So, and then later on, he writes science fiction novels like The Quest of the Three Worlds. There's a, a wonderful short story called Golden the Ship Was, oh, oh, oh. And it's all about this planet, which, which is not, um, it's a very, it's a small planet, 
but then there's this there's this other imperialistic alien race that's sweeping across the galaxy destroying all these worlds and they're like oh no what are we going to do we don't have the firepower to fight them so they create the legend that they have this planet destroying ship this golden ship that's massive it's the size of planets uh, and, and they successfully spread this rumor around faking evidence to the extent that the invading army finally finds out about it. And they're so frightened that they never go anywhere near this planet because they don't want to be destroyed by the non-existent planet killing ship. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to see it as a, as a metaphor for what he was trying to accomplish in his other life as a psychological warfare operative. But anyway, there's, there's all these kinds of fascinating linkages between science fiction and the intelligence community. So something else that I found found really interesting in your reporting um, in your in your latest articles was uh, was talking about the Nashville bombing that that took place um, after the election. Um, the, how, how sad the contortions are that that QAnon adherents create in order to tell a story um, where Trump is still in charge, where he has it all still figured out where he's, he's still president somehow and is laughing at his enemies and has them right where he wants them. Uh, and it, it's so sad because it feels like the kinds of stories that abandoned children tell about their heroic parents who must <laughs> surely be doing something incredible um, since they're not at home loving them. Uh, and it, it definitely, I'm, I'm just wondering, is this a common feature of conspiracy theories or is this kind of wishful thinking unique to Q uh, where the conspiracy is not entirely about the evil shit that villains are getting up to, but about secret joys and triumphs of their heroes. How how these people are not are not have not lost, but are still somehow in charge. Right. No, I I say I have a friend who was involved in the early um, Q postings. In other words, he was there watching it as the first posts unrolled in October of 2017, and he explained to me what that was like. And uh, he said the initial posts, which he felt were, were genuine, the original ones, possibly posted by someone other than the later Q or Team Q, uh, that, that, that initially the, the, the message was, don't worry, you know, there's people in, in the White House with Trump who are trying to help him make real change. You know, and he said it was like this hopeful message. And he, he thought it was unique in that the QAnon theory w w was one that uh, promulgated hope. Uh, and of course, it's sort of subjective. I mean, it's hopeful to who, you know, it's, it's hopeful to, to, to them, <laughs> you know. And, and yet at the same time, there is this aspect to it that you could, I was, I was just talking about like Leonard Lewin and, and it being satirical. Like my, my friend was talking about how early on he and his friends were posting his cue. You know, every, every was a, it was like a giddy kind of cue posting where other people were joining in on the fun and, and being cue as well, unfortunately. So it was like hard to tell who the real cue was. And so, and then he said, sometimes outsiders would come in and try to uh, say, well, that doesn't really make any sense. And then like lay out like logically why it doesn't make any sense. Then they would just double down on it and go, oh, you don't understand, you know, but it was all kind of like this fun kind of a thing for them. And he said that the initial stories about, you know, celebrities uh, kidnapping children and eating them. <laughs> and he said, you know, he goes, there's some, there's a kind of satirical truth to celebrities having, you know, uh, odd tastes, uh, et cetera. And uh, I, I thought in that, in that uh, sense, I don't know that QAnon is a successful uh, satire 
because it seems to me a successful satire makes the target smaller rather than larger. So, for example, back in the in the uh, 40s and 50s, you know, uh, when Thomas Dewey was running against Harry S. Truman, there was a columnist who wrote a famous column where she described Thomas Dewey as looking like the little man on the wedding cake. And this line like haunted Dewey through the rest of the campaign uh, because not only did it literally reduce him in size, but it also kind of spoke to the empty suit quality of this like empty plastic figure. And he literally did kind of look like that guy <laughs> on, the, on the top of the wedding cake. So in retrospect, historians, some of them, say that this had a lot to do with Harry Truman winning, you know, that big surprise election of Harry Truman actually winning. Uh, so that that's a successful satire because it reduces the target to being smaller than he is. Whereas with QAnon, with the whole thing about celebrities and, and politicians actually being like Satan worshiping magicians who are manifesting reality, that in that case, you're actually making them larger than they really are. <laughs> you know, you're, you're making them all powerful magicians. Uh, uh, so I don't know that that's a successful satire. I think it kind of backfired uh, in that sense. Yes, th there is a kind of element of uh, hope and, and hero worship. And in, in terms of like flipping the narrative, that's another interesting aspect to it because uh, the timing of Q is interesting in the sense that Jeffrey Epstein, th th there was a woman who came out and she was going to pursue a lawsuit against Donald Trump because she claimed that Trump had raped her when she was 13 at Epstein's house in New York. And I don't know if you recall this, but you know, the, and then uh, we never found out the identity of that woman because she withdrew the, uh, the, the, the lawsuit and the allegations. And then soon after that, Q shows up, you know, and then you get all the Epstein stuff. And of course, despite the fact that Donald Trump is in Epstein's little black book, along with Bill Clinton and along with Hillary Clinton, QAnon just, they totally, ignore the fact that Trump's in the little black book too. Uh, you know, I'd be mean, assuming that Epstein was actually perhaps working for some foreign power and, and, and uh, collecting blackmailable information on powerful people like Prince Andrew and, and Donald Trump, uh, for example. Uh, one uh, has to do um, amazing mental contortions to try to remove uh, Trump from the scenario as well, but they they have their own justifications for it, you know. And they, they oh, you know, I mean, if if like photos came out tomorrow of Epstein and Trump in bed with a ten year old, they would say, oh, Trump had to do that uh, in order to maintain his cover <laughs> because uh, he was infiltrating the deep state. And so it's just it's interesting that uh, the the whole QAnon narrative pops up uh, right after. The Epstein thing is happening, uh, and so one wonders if that was not another uh, motive to it, was just to distract and to separate uh, Trump from this potentially damaging uh, information about about Epstein. Given given that Q is kind of a top down operation, right, you know, in these drops, um, and certainly has sort of a you know paranoia about authenticity. Um, could we expect more operations like it? other people claiming have insider information to the, the true aims of, of either Trump or the deep state. It, it's bottomless. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we'll see QAnon rebranded without Q and it, it'll be something else. <laughs> why wait for all this chaos? Uh, 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 why not try to exploit it some more? 
And in fact, you could perceive it as a dry run for something else. You know, I mean, it, it bare, January 6th just barely missed out succeeding, I think, in, in, its, in its goal. Uh, maybe we need to regroup and uh, try again. You know, I mean, January 6th was kind of like the Bay of Pigs. As I said, I'm working on like a book-length version of this, and, and I'm going to begin it with a quote from Aldous Huxley, uh, Brave New World Revisited, uh, which is his collection of essays that he wrote after publishing Brave New World. Uh, and he, he wrote this book sort of analyzing where, where have we, where's the world gone since I published Brave New World. Uh, in regard to propaganda, the early advocates of universal literacy and a free press envisaged only two possibilities. The propaganda might be true or might be false. They did not foresee what in fact has happened. Above all, in our Western capitalist democracies, the development of a vast mass communications industry concerned in the main, neither with the true nor the false, but with the unreal, the more or less totally irrelevant. In a word, they failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. So uh, yeah, uh, infinite appetites. You know, it was, it was right after the election, this guy went on Twitter um, and said, well, obviously Q uh, was a democratic plan to distract from the real problems. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, you know, Q didn't work. And then immediately it was like, oh, Q, it was a plot by the Democrats. I see, you know, so I think that they'll just rebrand and, and QAnon will continue, uh, I think, to move more in the direction of being rather than a political movement, a, a religion, kind of like a mixture of the Church of Scientology and the Charles Manson family. It'll, it, it'll be really, really interesting. Uh, and just what we need. There is a there's something called the Omega Kingdom Ministries, which I think I mentioned in the, the Salon series. They're an actual church and they meet, you know, on Zoom because they initiated all this during the lockdown. But what they were doing when Q was still posting, because of course Q stopped posting the second Trump left office. It was kind of suspicious. If Q was if who he said he was, why wouldn't he continue posting? Don't we need him now more than ever? But no, it's like the second the funds ran out, like, look, I don't have any money to pay you anymore, okay? Uh, you got to go on to another project. And imagine that NDA, that <laughs> non-disclosure agreement that the, the team QAnon signed, you know, it, it's got to be bristling to know that you have an effect and you can't tell anyone about it. Uh, so the Omega Kingdom Ministries, uh, they're an actual church and they would take the, the Q posts and they would reinterpret them through the Bible. Uh, so they would have uh, meetings on Sunday, you know, on Zoom, and then they would come on Zoom and they would do a prayer to prevent demons from entering the Zoom room. And then they would take the latest Q post, read it, and then the pastor would interpret the post as seen through biblical prophecy. In, in a way, it's sort of a recapitulation of the, the late 80s uh, millennial uh, Christian fundamentalist uh, obsession with uh, the end times and with uh, the rapture. You know, it's, yeah, it's my favorite, my favorite thing to do when high school was getting high was to watch those preachers on TV just because they were, you know, John Hagee and Rod Parsley, um, because it was so fucking funny. But now I realize just how terrifyingly dangerous they were. I didn't think anybody was listening to them. They can be terrifyingly dangerous and funny at the same time. QAnon is kind of like a reverse rapture, because uh, in, in, in the rapture, uh, all of the non-believers will be plucked you know, out of their cars while they're driving on the freeway. And the, 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 the believers will be taken up to heaven and the, the non-believers will remain on, on earth to deal with literal hell on earth. 
Uh, and in the QAnon mythos, it, it's, it's the opposite. The non-believers will be swept away and thrown into Guantanamo or into a secret underground military base and they'll be confined in hell. And the believers will be able to kind of like breathe easy, I ah, and now we don't have to deal with those assholes anymore. And then they can move on with their day. What is it about you? How do you have the patience and I guess sort of emotional fortitude to read not just the source texts, but also just online discussions? And Yeah, I do know people who, I, I don't think that they would be able to sit through everything I sat through <laughs> in order to, because like when you read the four parts, you get these little nuggets, right? Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. You're, you're reading, you know, I had to like pluck that out of an hour, right? And I might get that signal to noise moment or is that okay i gotta he's talking about the nancy pelosi clone i <laughs> i gotta transcribe that part and so there is a sense of the i am interested in the kind of unintentional surrealism of it the andre breton absurdity of it but but also it helps to have a kind of existential view of things <laughs> by help to distance yourself from it i i, I think there are some people who would be just too mentally frustrated by it like, oh my, I, that, that was the main thing that attracted me to doing the four-part series was I will be able to document every time the story changes. The other day I was talking to a, a journalist and he had read the four-part series, but, and he had also, I just recently published a novel called Bell Lugosi's Dead, which is a kind of a dark fantasy novel. And there's two parallel storylines going on at the same time. One is taking place in the 1980s in Los Angeles from the point of view of this guy who's like really obsessed with the golden age of Hollywood and, and Lugosi. And he starts a zine about forgotten films. Uh, and then there's a parallel story happening in the distant past involving the, the mummy and the mummy movies being the master of the Freemasons. And he initiates Frankenstein's monster into the Freemasons and all this kind of like weird stuff. And it's not clear what the two storylines have to do with each other until way, you have to keep reading it until you get further on down the line. Uh, one story set in the 80s is written in a very realistic spare kind of style. And then the other parallel storyline is written in a kind of overblown, like uh, pulp fiction kind of way. Later on, they kind of begin to merge together. Uh, and I, I suddenly realized that the, the four-part QAnon series is kind of structured in a similar way. You start with the, the real world where the election has occurred, and then you will transition into the fake kind of weird virtual reality QAnon world and what they're saying, then I'll go back into either a newspaper article or my, my own commentary on current events back into the virtual reality world. And then eventually you'll see how what they're saying in the fake QAnon world spills out into the three-dimensional world and begins to affect <laughs> every, everyone outside their solipsistic like fantasy world. So eventually, uh, I had a friend of mine say that as you read deeper into the four parts, the, the real world parts starts to get so weird that it's like, is that, am I reading about the real world now? Or is that the fake human world? I don't know. I've always had a, a fascination with that thin line between fantasy and reality and, and what, where does one stop and the other end? And sometimes it's hard to tell. I've, I've known people uh, who, were, who were mentally ill uh, and, and sometimes you know, if you're around them enough, you begin to wonder like, wait, wait, oh, maybe that is true. You know, I, <laughs> you, you know maybe they're the ones who, who are sane. So I, I've always been fascinated by that kind of thing. That aspect of the, of the four-part series of documenting every time the story changes uh, was something that really appealed to me to, to get that down on paper, even though I know that 
the, the QAnon people aren't going to read it. You know, the, in fact, he, in Rick Renee will tell his flock, do not expose yourself to the mainstream media and to, or to any media that's not QAnon media, uh, because that's Satan. That's Satan trying to poison the well and poison your mind. I, I mentioned this in part two, uh, that Rick and Gene, they're kind of like magic practicing Christians. It's a really weird kind of like paradoxical thing, but they talk about timelines and they'll say, we're not accepting that timeline. And so when they, they'll come on, they'll say, Trump is, is going to be president on March 4th again. They're not lying necessarily. They're trying to manifest that reality. And this is how Trump talks. He'll say something over and over and over again, thinking that if you say it long enough, it will simply come true which is, I, I mentioned in there that he was, you know, he was raised in the church of Norman Vincent Peale, the, the power of positive thinking. <clears throat> uh, and, and that's, uh, Rick and Gene are sort of uh, obsessed with this whole idea that people in Hollywood are using sigils uh, and manifesting their, their weird progressive reality through the fiction and the movies that they produce and the music videos and the comic books. Uh, and and, and that, that's it's kind of interesting because Grant Morrison, who's a comic book writer, talks about using sigils for exactly that reason, you know, trying to manifest certain ideas in, into reality. So Rick and Gene got word of this, I guess, and they think that like everyone in Hollywood is doing this and they're all uh, using their black magic to, to, to bring about their, their uh, gender neutral future, uh, which they, they fear most of all. And so they're, they're like trying to combat it by doing their own sigils. In part two, I reproduced that long 12-page document, uh, which was essentially ver their version of the sigil, where they're like manifesting what they want to have happen. Uh, and so Rick will come on and he'll say, he'll tell his listeners, don't expose yourself to what the mainstream media is saying. It's not because he's trying to protect them from the, from the pain of the real world. It's because he thinks that the less attention that is brought to it, the less likely that reality will actually occur. Uh, in a way, it's a kind of Fordian idea, Charles Ford, uh, who wrote the Book of the Damned and Low back in 1919, early 1900s. Ford invented the word teleportation. He was in a, wrote about UFOs before that term existed. Uh, he had in, in Book of the Damned, I think it's in Book of the Damned, where he mentions his theory that when the vast majority of the world thought that the earth was flat, it literally was flat. Uh, and then when it ticked over and the majority suddenly thought that it was an oblate spheroid, it, it turned into an oblate spheroid. Uh, so it, it's it, in a way, it's this <clears throat> kind of Fordian conception of reality actually being malleable, uh, depending on the energy, the thought energy that you direct towards it. It's a, it's a kind of Gnostic view of reality. It's kind of weird. So much of the QAnon terminology comes from the matrix, right? Which um, the, the, the precursor to that, as you mentioned, is the invisibles, right? Which famously was kind of on set. Uh, the Wachowski's sisters are famous for, you know, really loving that comic book. Whereas the QAnon stuff, though it has some terminology with the matrix, it's way more aligned with the invisibles. Did Grant Morrison have any any ideas for how to get us out of this morass? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so Grant Morrison appeared on Douglas Rushkoff's uh, Team Human uh, uh, podcast right around the elections. And Grant Morrison was saying how, you know, we were using sigils uh, in the past 
to sort of bring about this more progressive future. And so it's strange that the conservatives, the, the right-wing fundamentalist Christians kind of latched onto it. And now they're trying to do the same thing to pull reality back to where they want it to be. And so Grant Morrison said, you know, maybe we need to start using sigils to sort of meet in the center again, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and you kind of see that in the latter issues of the, of the Green Lantern series. I, I, I see that maybe manifesting a little bit in, in, in the uh, overall theme of that, of that series that maybe Graham Morrison is trying to pull it, pull it back. So Morrison is advocating magical detente. That's the magical detente. That's a really good phrase for it. Yeah, I, that, that's pretty much what, what Graham Morrison was advocating. Yeah. Are there, are there any popular or unpopular or un, uh, underreported conspiracy theories that, that you personally believe? You know, you, you talked about this being kind of an existential quest, um, conspiracy as art form, but is, is, has anything penetrated um, that, that you, you don't have any evidence for and there's no, um, you, would, you couldn't even begin to think about researching, but you, you still think is, is kind of true? Um, I, I'll tell you about a conspiracy theory that, that I love, though I probably don't think it's true. In fact, I mentioned him as a progenitor of, of some of the QAnon theories. I mentioned earlier just briefly about Gene uh, talking about how Nancy Pelosi is a clone. You see, on January 6th, they, <laughs> they came in and, they, and Nancy Pelosi took off because she didn't want to be arrested by the insurrectionists. So she took off and tried to, to get into a foreign submarine to flee the United States. But instead, she was arrested by the Space Force. I don't know if you know this. Uh, and the Nancy Pelosi yeah. we see now is not the real Nancy Pelosi. The real Nancy Pelosi is in prison. And the one we see now is a clone, you see. Uh, and uh, this, this hies back to uh, a theory by a fellow named Dr. Peter Beter, which was his real name. And uh, Peter Beter was an actual uh, professional economist. Uh, who wrote a book called The Conspiracy Against the Dollar in 1971, uh, and then later produced a series of what he called audio letters, which were these uh, cassette tapes, and you could subscribe to them, and he would send them to you in the mail in an envelope, uh, and you put it on, and, and he would talk about his sort of alternative facts in the world of, of, of the U.S. economy or global economy, and then slowly it, it, it went off into the twilight zone, where he started talking about the Battle of the Harvest Moon, which was where the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds were fighting each other. They had a moon base. There was a particle beam weapon. Uh, and then this led into even more insane territory uh, about something he called organic robotoids. Uh, the Soviet Union was killing off uh, the military and, and politicians and replacing them what he called organic robotoids, clones. So Henry Kissinger was a clone. Jimmy Carter was a clone. That's why Jimmy Carter is still going strong, you see, because he's not human. Um, and uh, uh, Peter would, would, would send these tapes to you. And he, he always, you can hear them all on YouTube. You look up Peter Beter, audio letters. Uh, and he would deliver all of this in the most monotone voice. His tonality and intonation never changes over the course of like the 80 audio letters that he produced. So you see some of this, the organic robotoid stuff coming up, popping up in QAnon with Nancy Pelosi and some of the QAnon people think Hillary's a clone. But also uh, his audio letters inspired one of my favorite punk albums of all time, which is called Only Lovers Left Alive uh, by Stiv Baders. Great uh, Jim Jarmusch movie as well. The same title is used uh, by Jim yeah. Jarmusch, both of which I think were inspired by a nonfiction book that was published like I think in the 1950s called Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, uh, but Stiv Baders, who was, uh, you know, of the Dead Boys, he started this band called The Wanderers and they only made one album. 
and it was called Only Lovers Left Alive. And it's a Peter Beater concept album. Uh, in fact, he has a song on it called Dr. Beater. Uh, and, and he uses Peter Beater uh, snippets from the audio letters in between the songs and during the songs. Uh, and the cover is, is a photograph of a desk. And on the desk, you can see the audio letters like scattered across the desk. Uh, so, you know, if Peter Beater's theory was not true, at least it inspired one of the great punk albums ever. I hope Jimmy Carter's a clone. I, I doubt it. Do you think this is something uniquely American, our, our love for these conspiracies that lead to violence? Or do you think there's any hope for us? Or, or would you, do you have any advice for how we can help our relatives who may be um, suffering from paranoid delusions? Around March and April, when I started looking into it deeply, I noticed that there were some mainstream reporters started to talk about it. So there was a big article in the Atlantic Monthly uh, and other newspapers were, were writing about it. And you could tell the reporters were baffled, confused, didn't quite know how to address it. Like maybe they, they looked at a couple of videos or read a few of the Q posts and tried to write about it, but they really had no background or ability <laughs> to properly assess what all this was. And so inevitably Q would link to those articles and say, see, they're getting it all wrong. Uh, and, and you are the news now. And, and I saw that and I thought, I, I flashed back to my first book, which is called Cryptoscatology, Conspiracy Theory as Art Form. There's one chapter there called uh, George W. Bush is Not a Christian. And in there, I talk about how, you know, he professes to be a Christian, but meanwhile, he's doing all these, you know, anti-Christian things. And, and I said in there, you know, it's incumbent upon real Christians to, to write about this, because that's, that's the person who has the authority to come out and say, hey, this guy is not for real. Uh, I, whereas I have no authority, I'm not Christian. <laughs> uh, uh, so I won't be believed, you know. And so I flash back to that when I was reading these articles like the, in the Atlantic about QAnon, I thought, I actually know about this stuff. So perhaps it's incumbent about me to, to write about it, to, so, you know, to say, this is where all this is coming from. And hopefully one or two maybe of the QAnon people read the Salon series and, and said, well, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. You know, I mean, I can actually tell that he knows what he's talking about. You know, if, if, it, if it convinced just one person, you know, to, <laughs> to, to run away, then perhaps it would have been worth it. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, it, was, it was necessary, uh, to, even though it is, in a way, it is a distraction from more serious things, that it, it was important to, to take the time and really kind of lay it out and analyze it and cut the corpse open and say, this is where this is where all this is coming from. Uh, uh, and uh, rather than leave it to people who clearly were not equipped, they might be equipped to do other things, <laughs> but they weren't equipped to, to handle this particular story. Do you think, do you think publications, I mean, we've certainly done, done this, but do you think publications should kind of set a, a budget for, you know, conspiracy experts uh, you know, in, in, in the same way that they have financial experts or, or statistics ex experts. In a way, yeah. I mean, how do you determine someone's, how do you determine someone's credentials is, I guess, the, the question for, for whether they qualify as an actual conspiracy expert or not. You know, that, that's one of the things that fascinated me about conspiracy theories early on, and also ufology, these kind of fringe areas, is that people self-initiate. Right. They make themselves yeah. experts. You don't, you can't study, you don't get a degree in it. 
that's one of the things that fascinated me about it early on, like when I was in my early 20s and there was an explosion in the, in the, like the DIY zine culture of these like conspiracy magazines, Paranoia, Steam Shovel Press, the Excluded Middle, uh, there was one called Prevailing Winds, which was more serious, um, Strange Magazine. There was this explosion of zines into like paranormal, high strangeness, conspiracies. And I was fascinated by the fact that it kind of, it was like this wild west uh, situation of all kinds of different things all together. So you'd have like crazy fascist, like neo-Nazi conspiracy theories right next to uh, sort of like anti-fascist conspiracy theory or something that was a little more reasonable or something that was clearly intended to be funny. That was intended yeah. to be satire uh, next to something that written by someone who clearly had no sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the fact that it was all put together under the same roof just really interested in me. Uh, and so, yeah, like a, 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 a conspiracy expert on every, that, that would be their beat, uh, I guess would be probably a valuable thing. Almost like, you know, the Pentagon has a department of the occult. Uh, and so the QAnon people would say, you see, the practice of the occult. But in fact, the purpose of it is to study the occult beliefs of, uh, you know, foreign leaders and, and other and, and foreign countries. And just, just like British MI6, you know, uh, hired Aleister Crowley to help them during World War II to help understand the occult uh, beliefs of the, of the Nazis, you know, the, and he worked with Ian Fleming and Dennis Wheatley, one of those wonderful, you know, how did that come about uh, scenarios. Uh, so perhaps that would be uh, not a bad idea, <laughs> particularly as we move forward well, in the future. Thank you so much for, for sitting down with, with me and you're, you said you have a new book on, on movies. When you expect to drop that one? Well, I just finished writing it. So I'm, okay. I'm talking to a, a publisher now, nothing definite yet, but I, I suspect it will be out hopefully next year. Well, all right. I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me and, uh, and we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to get deeper um, next time. I, I, will, I will take the shamanic journey into the dark realms and pull back <laughs> what you need to know. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Thank you for having me on and, and uh, keep the ravioli in orbit. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah.